All right. I'm joined today by Georgia State University philosophy professor Jennifer Burgess. What up? <laughs> All right. So uh, we're taking a little bit of a break from the usual political content for this one. Hell yeah, we are. Uh, but uh, we are open to taking calls about almost anything else, you know, within reason. Y'all want the dirt uh, on Ben? I got it. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, you know, if you want to, if you want to start calling in, so I am nothing if not entertaining. Well, you are entertaining, but you know, you, you need to be, uh, you need to be prompted. You know, you're not like, uh, you're not like Zizek, you know, who'll just like show up to an interview with notes and, and, and just sort of go off, you know, for half an hour if you don't interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know. I think my students would disagree with that. They, they love to just sit through my endless tangents. We have uh, Thomas. What's on your mind, Thomas? Hey. Um, okay, so instead of uh, you know, from a from from a philosophical perspective, instead of a political perspective, like <laughs> what would you say Marx's biggest contribution to philosophy is? Ben. Uh, Marx's biggest contribution to philosophy. Uh, this is, this is very, uh, on the, you know, we're, uh, <laughs> try to, uh, try to think what the, what the non-political answer to this is. Uh, so, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. All right. All right. That's okay. I like the challenge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a little bit unclear to me because it seems like, you know, the three sort of main things that Marx is doing is he's got like a theory of how, you know, capitalist economy works and to a certain extent, how other kinds of class society works. He's got a theory of how historical change happens and he has a, um, you know, he has a theory and he has like a normative political program. Um, and so, like, he spends a lot of time, like, criticizing Hegel, uh, you know, in the, you know, but, like, ultimately, because he's interested in that theory of history, which I guess is something that, like, in the 19th century, people would think of a little bit more as part of philosophy than we tend to now. I mean, like, certainly, if you, you know, you think about Hegel's view, which is that, like, history is the world spirit, which is basically God sort of finding itself through the process of history. It's like, okay, well, it sounds very, very philosophy, you know, and, uh, yeah. uh, and, and Marx is criticizing that on materialist grounds. You know, he, he doesn't think it, it, you know, he didn't think it worked that, that way. Right. He thinks that it's like economics is, is kind of the, the motor of, of history. So that's like, is that a view about economics? Is that a view about history? Is that a view about philosophy? I mean, it's certainly, if, if we're going to talk about the parts of Marx that seem less directly political, I mean, I guess that would be it, you know, I mean, uh, but I don't know, you know, but I mean, it, it sort of seems like if he's right, that it's sort of, you know, in a weird, you know, the way it sort of stops being a philosophical question, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is, is like, is Marx taught in like philosophy, uh, like, I don't know, programs? Like, I was reading a book about Hegel, and they mentioned a bunch of like philosophers influenced by Hegel and stuff, and they, they just like never mentioned Marx. <laughs> Which, like, yeah, that's, got that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like, okay, so I was just talking about Marx's theory of history, and there's a book by, you know, G.A. Cohen called Karl Marx's Theory of History. And, you know, Cohen is like trained as an analytic philosopher and uh, and he he's trying to like kind of break down a lot of Marx's claims into precise arguments using that kind of philosophical training. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I guess maybe my sense is probably... I mean, I have... Assign Marx in philosophy classes sometimes, but 
I I don't know. I I think like I think probably you know I think probably either in like um you know more continental kind of philosophy programs like it might happen more uh or it you know or like I think in like more analytic philosophy kinds of programs it's probably going to be more in like political philosophy classes if 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 at all I mean would be you know would be you know would be my guess I mean I will also say like at the time that I was like going to grad school and stuff I was like slightly weird for being interested in this I I suspect, <laughs> I suspect that some of the ways the world's changed since then might mean that's a little bit more common now, but I, I, I guess I can't speak to that with any certainty. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, well, thank you. Is, is, is Hegel the culmination of bourgeois philosophy? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I don't really know what that means to be honest. Like I, I think, you know, cause it's like, I, I guess part of the question here is about like um, what you know. I mean, what makes up the bourgeois philosophy, right? So, like, I, I think you know, if you're talking about like political philosophy that doesn't necessarily assume, um, you know, like like you know, involves some, you know, like being against capitalism or something like that, then like, I don't know. I mean, it seems like there's this lots of that since then and some of it's interesting and, you know, whatever, but uh, Dr. Jen. Yo. <laughs> what, who are, uh, who are some of your favorite philosophers? Oh, let's see. Aristotle. I know that's a very cliche answer. It's okay. It's a, could be um, cliche and, and also a good answer. I don't know. Do I have to have favorites? Yeah, you do. It's a rule. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know. Well, let's let's start with Aristotle. Let's uh, let's let's talk about what's uh, what's what's interesting about Aristotle. Oh, Aristotle knows everything. <laughs> you know, you have a question, you you pick up your complete Aristotle, find the answer. <laughs> Is there like a helpful <laughs> index at the end of that, or do you just have to slip around for a while? It's it's that thing where you just let the book fall open and the answer will be on that page. Wow. Awesome. All right. Well, I, I know. I've really got to start doing this. Okay, we've got a call from uh, Rick. Hi there, guys. Um, I, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Richard Dawkins' concept of a meme and memeplex and, you know, the evolution of memes. I'm curious what you think about that as a more materialist version of Hegel. Ben, this is all you. Okay. So, um, so I'm familiar with some of this, but Rick, do, do you want to, um, do you want to say a little bit more about how Dawkins idea works? Oh yeah, sure. So, um, so obviously Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist motivated by that kind of perspective on, and he had this, you know, particular uh, view of the, the basic unit of evolution being not the individual animal, but being the gene. So the genes were the fundamental, uh, fundamentally the things that were in competition with each other. And he thought a lot about this. He wrote that book, The Selfish Gene. At the end of that book, I think, he he starts thinking of what other things could be like genes that... Um, that replicate, that undergo mutation, um, and, uh, you know, therefore exhibit that kind of natural selection effect or other kinds of selection effects like sexual selection, uh, but uh, exhibit selection and evolve over time into great complicated structures. And I think the thought occurred to him that, hey, ideas are kind of like this. A single idea is something uh, that can mutate, it can kind of undergo sex when it combines with other ideas, um, and it can certainly replicate in people's minds. So you get an idea that's favorable or exciting, and when one mind discovers that idea, it starts replicating in other minds. He communicates it, and it starts replicating, and it spreads kind of like a virus. 
Um, and that, so of course, like Marx and you know other uh, thinkers around that time, you know people were very skeptical of Hegel's idealism. But there's, but I, I think the this concept of ideas like genes, which that's the concept of the meme that Dawkins coined, that ideas they have this kind of life uh, unto themselves and they replicate and they spread around. That kind of puts a physicalist guts under the kind of fuzzy ideas that Hegel had about like, you know, a world spirit, ideas that kind of flow through history and, uh, you know, in the, um, you know, undergoing, um, you know, kind of merging together and producing some, you know, new, uh, you know, idea that, that goes beyond the, the, the original ideas. It, it, there's, there's a flavor to Hegel that kind of can be interpreted in light of Dawkins, like a more real legitimate scientific theory and not this uh, kind of, you know, uh, post-Kantian metaphysical stuff. Yeah, so, right. So ultimately Dawkins thinks that, I guess it may be as useful to just start thinking about the original biological thing before the metaphor, that I think that's what you're saying. I think like what I've understood from things I've seen Dawkins say is, um, so normally we think about evolutionary biology. We think like that, like species are the things that are, um, selected for that the, um, that they're what like, uh, that they're sort of like the basic unit of the the process that like, you know, this version of a, you know, of a species with this, you know, mutation is the one that survives and, you know, uh, and that uh, because, you know, in these, in these particular conditions, and I think probably usually when people are like informally laid out, that's what they, that's what they're thinking. But uh, Dawkins thinks that, it's important to see that like what's actually, you know, I think, you know, what's actually being selected for is the genes, right. You know, like that, uh, that we're just kind of the, the carriers, but I mean, that's, that's like where all the action is in evolution. And so when you start thinking about memes, by the way, I have a really stupid question, but it's, um, is Dawkins use of the word meme like, like this, is that somehow, like a forebear, you know, life like related to the way that we used uh, memes, like to talk about, you know, like Facebook. yeah, yeah. So he he came up with the concept of meme. I, I think it was the seventies that he came up with it, and then subsequently, you know, with social media, the the meaning got altered a little. But it was his term that was the the origin. Okay, all right. So this is yeah, and I guess actually, so maybe thinking about how memes are supposed to work in Dawkins' picture, thinking about memes in that like Facebook memes kind of sense is probably useful, right? Because uh, if, I don't know, Jen, what's what's one of your favorite memes? Why? <laughs> there you go. Uh, does that, that might not be a great example for I'm going though, because does that one go through a lot of variation? Nope. <laughs> yeah, all right. So that one's just like, a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it was, it was like, it was created at the dawn of time and it just, it just stays um, it is my favorite meme, though. <laughs> Why, though? <laughs> because of its simplicity. There you go. And its uh, universal applicability. Yeah. What's a good example of a meme that, that people have, like, a million different versions of? Uh, like the the Drake meme, you mean? Yeah, right. Okay, so, like, the one where he's, like, looking at, you know, he's, like, uh, he's, like, yeah, like bad and then naughty. good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, just to be clear, the, the concept of replication here doesn't mean. Uh, I, I think. I guess you're thinking about mutation. How would yeah. memes mutate? Replica- replication clearly works by just having essentially the same meme in everybody's head. But I think the whole internet conception of a meme is much narrower. And Dawkins was interested in you know essentially any idea can be a meme. Um, and, you know, think of the components of the theory of relativity, right. so, like the classical theory of electromagnetism, plus like Galileo's principle of relative motion. 
those were two ideas and then they combined into the theory of relativity and then you had this amazing uh you know um kind of flowing forth of additional ideas that got wrapped up in that i think that's maybe a good paradox yeah right so um or you know evolutionary biology right so which which is um you know think like okay so there's you know darwin's uh you know so darwin's theory and i mean the reason i was thinking about the the like internet memes you know as like a very narrow example is is just to think about like how the the structure is supposed to work that like you have so um you know that it like replicates just in the sense that like okay you know right so like a million people post the why though meme and then it's um you know but then like they could also mutate the way that you know the way that genes can like you know all of the you know the zillion versions of of the uh the drake meme or whatever and and you know and yeah, so you use the example of relativity, but we could even do like evolutionary biology that there's, um, you know, there's like Darwin's theory and then, you know, people, you know, whatever, like they read it, you know, they, they read Origin of the Species and, you know, and then they believe it and then they write down other explanations of it and, you know, et cetera. So it like replicates that way. It also, you know, mutates uh, when uh, because, you know, Darwin didn't know about genes uh, so, you know, so he had a, he had a hard time explaining the mechanism. So like when the discoveries of genetics comes about, you know, like it mutates that way. And, and when the, um, uh, and then like, when you get these debates sort of like, uh, well, you know, between people like Dawkins and, you know, people like Stephen Jay Gould about like, you know, whether, um, like a lot of things about like kind of the mechanics of, um, uh, of evolution, you know, whether, you know, whether you have these, um, you know, tend to have these like big leaps, you know, forward in this, this punctuated equilibrium way or, you know, or, or it's more gradual or whatever. So, okay. So, so there is like some, some kind of sense in which ideas are like, um, you know, ideas can be like genes. Like, like I think that much is, is clearly, is clearly right. Um, I, I guess, I guess maybe pushing the metaphor that you're, you were going with and then, and then, or I don't know, maybe not a metaphor, but just the, the like question about how, you know, whether, um, whether this is like something like Hegel's theory of history that, you know, that history sort of progresses through, uh, you know, like the, the progress of history should you know, be understood with like ideas as the motor, rather than like Marx thinking that like economics is the motor, then yeah, I think there, I, I think that like, if you wanted to have like a more rigorous version of this, I mean, this is probably a good place to start, but I guess it's also, I guess the question to push on though is like, okay, so if, if like, you know, meme, you know, memes in that broad sense of like ideas are, um, you know, replicated and mutated, you know, kind of on their own, uh, the real question, I think, is what, you know, where the the selection effect is going to come from, right? You know, why why some you know some ideas are selected for and they, you know, grow and you know prosper and you know and other ones uh, other ones don't, right? I mean, why why uh, why we think, you know, why a certain set of ideas you know ends up becoming dominant at a certain point in history, and I know you know when I was talking to the previous caller, I mean, I, I mentioned. G.A. Cohen's book, Marx's Theory of History, which I've just been teaching a class on, so it's like on my mind. And a lot of Cohen's explanation of, like, Cohen actually leads pretty hard in some places on this evolutionary analogy for thinking about how certain kinds of Marxist historical claims are going to work, right? Like when you say the the legal superstructure, right, the laws of the government, um, you know, is like comes out of the, uh, the, the material base, right? What, what does that, you know, what does that mean? Right? Like what's the like actual cause and effect mechanism, you know, by which um, the way that the laws of the government are would like reflect the way that the economy is. And, and it says, you know, not always, right. Cause sometimes, 
you know, just, it's a very different kind of thing. Right. You know, so, uh, so like, you know, there are different mechanisms, but like some of the mechanisms are Darwinian-ish, right? And certainly to the extent that you think ideas are going to also reflect the material base, then that would be, you know, you know, we're very dangerously close to politics here, but I think that the, uh, you know, the question, you know, the question would be like, how is it that, you know, if you think that ideas are superstructural, meaning that like idea, you know, that like the, Right, what Marx says, right? The ruling ideas of any age or the ideas of the ruling class, like what's the mechanism there? Um, and if you, you know, like that could be a, a view about why it is that a certain ideas end up becoming dominant, you know, because like they, they kind of fit with the needs of a society at that time, which, which is ultimately going to have some kind of, um, you know, material explanation, you know, people in, you know, people in positions of power, you know, find them convenient, et cetera, uh, without anybody having to like consciously conspire about it. So, so in that case, I think you could actually fit in the sort of like memes or like genes thing from Dawkins, like pretty comfortably into at least how Cohen understands Marx's theory of history. Uh, if you're going to have the purely idealist version of it, where it's like, um, where like it's really just you know it's like you know ideas all the way down kind of you know that it's it's that's that's that ideas just in themselves are sort of driving history forward that i guess the question would be like what's the you know what's the selection mechanism now i don't know um so I, I understand the way you're taking it, which is kind of to find a way in which the idea can be founded on a more purely Marxist view. Um, and I was kind of approaching it from a different direction, which is Marxism seems like a special case of this larger, this larger theory, namely that um, in, there are certain instances in which ideas about uh, economics, you know, your, your class interests, yeah. and how, how, how do class interests exist? They are things in your head rattling around, you know, among your neurons. Um, it, it's a kind of an organization that you perceive out in the world and that has some kind of effect on the physical matter of your brain and causes you to do certain things. Uh, and, and clearly an instance of that is ideas about class interests. Another instance of that could be like why Einstein came up with relativity or Darwin came up with the theory of natural selection probably having nothing to do with his class interests, more that he was just curious about things and that occurred as a true powerful idea to him and he liked it. So it, I was trying to get at this as a generalization of the, the Marxian view of history where class interests operate sometimes, but that's not the full, that doesn't explain all cases of how ideas uh, can kind of drive history in certain cases. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly could be right. I mean, what, what I was actually, so, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I, I would say class interests don't necessarily have to be something that you're, uh, that are our ideas in your head for them to be causally relevant. I mean, it could be that you just act like on the basis of all sort of motivations that have nothing to do with it. But if you're not acting, you know, in your interests, you know, like, like okay, so like you could have like, you know, a bunch of business owners and, you know, for a reason, you know, realistically, quite often they will realize that something is in their interest and do that for that reason, right? But it could be that they, that, you know, some of them do something that's in their interest for completely different reasons and others don't. And it's just that the ones that, the ones that do are, are going to like survive competitively or something like that, right? But, um, but yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. I, so, so the question I was asking was a little bit different, and although maybe you partially answered it, which is like, if you're going to say, like, if you're going to do this sort of more Hegelian version of it, that it's it's just like the that you know you're going to take that sort of basic Richard Dawkins memes as genes thing and like turn it into an ultimately non-materialist theory of history. That I guess my question is going to be. Like, okay, I understand, you know, like, what's the, what's the thing that sort of selects for like, which, you know, which ideas are going to, you know, survive and reproduce. 
And, and I, I, you know, I guess in like the relativity case, um, it's, you know, it's going to be something like, you know, that the, it's, it's just going to be so incredibly like scientifically uh, useful, right. That it's, it's going to, you know, it's going to generate so many, you know, fruitful predictions and, uh, you know, whatever that like, that there's, there's like a, you know, that like, I think that like when it comes to scientific ideas that there's probably a way of explaining why certain ideas are selected for and why certain ones aren't that, you know, might just be like, you know, like the ones ideas that more closely conform to reality in ways such that they, you know, that they're going to like generate useful predictions and, and that they're going to, I don't know, like uh, help us make sense of a lot of other things like are the ones that are going to, are going to survive and, and flourish and, you know, have sex with other ideas, you know, I guess in the, if you're doing like a grand unified theory or something and, and all that stuff. So that, you know, that makes sense to me. Uh, I, I, I guess, you know, cause like, but I mean the same way that like, okay, so, you know, Einstein comes up with that, like, and maybe even he, you know, I mean, whatever, I'm, I don't know how true this is, but I mean, at least the sort of popular account is that like, you know, he originally, like the idea comes to him with, you know, you know, like, like, like he, he sort of makes some of the connection, conceptual connection just cause like he has a dream or something, you know, that that's fine. Like, and but like he only convinces enough other people of it that it like all that, you know, the idea survives his death and, you know, and all that stuff that because it lines up with external reality and, uh, or, or at least lines up with it closely enough to be scientifically fruitful. So then the question, it you know, so that, but then I guess the question would be with more like purely ideological kinds of ideas, right. You know, that like ideas about, um, you know, religion or ideas about politics or, you know, other kinds of ideas like that, where there's no like obvious analogy to that. Right. You know, then like, I, I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess well, the big, ju- yeah. Well, can, can we take for a second Marxism sure. itself? So, so sure. on your view, you're a yeah. Marxist. Why do you think the idea of Marxism caught on? Uh, well, yeah, why did uh why did Marxism uh catch on? Yeah, I mean I think that part of it, you know, is that you know there is probably some very rough analogy. I wouldn't want to push this too far to what I just said, but that the um that like I think that the that you know probably helps a lot of people make sense of of, of their experiences, right. You know, lines up closely enough with the way external reality is that like it has uh, that, you know, that, it, that it has some, some explanatory power, uh, you know, like insofar as we're talking about like Marxism's descriptive claims, not like the, the normative, you know, political program. Um, and, and I think that the, you know, so, so I, I think the normative political program also, I mean, I think probably, you know, catches on because it sort of lines up with and kind of makes more systematic sense of like some basic intuitions that people might have about why the society around them is unjust. But I mean, I take your point, right? Which, which I think is that like this, some of this is going to cut both ways, right? That like, I think if you, if you start with the basic like Dawkins idea that like memes are like genes, then and then you ask the obvious next question, right? If we're going to push this metaphor, which is like, okay, so if those are like genes, right? Like what's like the, what's the thing that's like the environment that, you know, that selects for, for some of them and and not others. Right. And that the sort of proposed answer that's given by Marxism, it, you know, which is a very like view from 10,000 feet kind of answer is that, you know, ideas that survive and thrive, you know, um, there are certain kinds of ideas maybe that survive and thrive, right? You know, are going to, you know, enough that they become dominant in society as a whole are going to, to sort of serve the, the, you know, 
material interests of people at the top of that society and they're going to kind of keep that society going. And maybe that's true and maybe it's not, but even if it's, even if it is true, that's not going to answer a lot of sort of, once we get a little closer to earth, there are a lot of questions that we might have about why certain ideas catch on and why others don't. That's probably not going to answer because they're, you know, it's not like, um, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins is, uh, uh, ideas about biology have, you know, or, or his like metaphor about memes, you know, have like survived because it, you know, serves the interests of, you know, capitalism. Right. I mean, that'd be silly. Right. So, so, so I, I, I take it that, you know, so the question I was kind of asking you, which was like, okay, on a purely idealist view, what's the sort of equivalent of a, of a natural environment that selects for certain genes for ideas that that's gonna, you know, that like maybe Marxism, you know, for like a materialist theory of history, maybe you have a very partial answer to that question, but like at best, it's going to be very partial for a purely idealist one. I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit less clear about what the, what the even like the sort of significant partial answer would be. Right. And there seems to be an obvious kind of middle answer, which is that uh, clearly material conditions are part of that environment. And also, other previous ideas are part of that environment. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I just don't feel the need to be either in, in the sense, I mean, in a certain sense, I want to be 100% pure materialist in the most basic sense that ultimately it's just atoms, you know, running around and... Sure, sure, sure. But, but, but as but, far as more proximate explanation of... Right. Yeah, there's, no, there's, I, 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 I yeah. get your point. That makes a lot of sense. All right, let's uh, let's get uh, all right, let's get Sam in here. Hey guys, how are you today? I'm Hello? pretty good. Okay, okay. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted your guys' opinion on something I was actually discussing with some of my um, alumni from uh, from uh, philosophy. Um, and uh, it was interestingly enough uh, a discussion on. Uh, impact and influence in terms of, you know, I think it's kindly, kindly pretty much agreed upon that, you know, in the history, in the tradition of Western philosophy, in the West, in the canon of Western philosophy, it's pretty much Plato, Aristotle, and everything after Plato and Aristotle is just uh, footnotes. I think that's that's a quote actually uh, that I'm actually stealing. Yes, uh, um, Alfred Alfred North Whitehead. He says that he says that all of Western philosophy is footnotes to Plato. Yeah, yeah. So, and for the longest time, you know, I, I've I've been wondering, and I was having this discussion with my friends, and I'm curious what you guys think. Wouldn't shouldn't we say that Kant is actually up there in terms of it's Plato, then Kant, and everything else's footnotes? Because it seems as if, and obviously my area of interest and I guess somewhat expertise in undergraduate philosophy as, as much as expertise as you can possibly have as just an undergraduate level was a human Kant and, you know, the discourse uh, in terms of how, you know, the whole um, going from inquiring uh, concerning human understanding to the critique of pure reason. That's where my area of interest was. And from my understanding, not that, not only the Kant, um, uh, address Hume's uh, issues with um, uh, with rationalism, but also in doing so, kind of birth the split of continental and analytic, and really wrapped up a lot of issues that even pre- predated uh, Hume and predated Descartes and Thomas Aquinas. So, uh, do you guys? What do you guys think about Kant's position in the historical canon of canon of philosophy? Uh, in my opinion, he's as impactful and influential as Plato. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, Jed, what do you think? Where's, uh, where, where, where's Kant in the pantheon? Uh, well, obviously the only thing that I really do with Kant is the, the moral stuff. And he's extremely important there. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, well, maybe let's start with that, though, right? Like, because that's not, you know, even though I don't think that's what the caller is primarily thinking of, I, I think it's an interesting question, right? So, in terms of of moral philosophy, like in 
um, like pre twentieth century, like you know, like like is Kant uh, important enough to you know to to go up with like I don't know like well if I if I taught an ethics class and didn't bring up Kant I would get fired. So <laughs> I think you probably would, you probably you probably would literally be fired just for that. <laughs> I would receive a, a stern talking to. <laughs> you know, what, trying, what am I doing? <laughs> I try to imagine that talking to the <laughs> like how that conversation. <laughs> uh, well, if there was somebody overseeing this stuff, and uh, and I did teach an ethics class without Kant, they would they would wonder about whether I should be back next semester. Yeah. Yeah. At the very least, at the very least, that'd be extremely surprising. Uh, that's like, uh, and incompetent, and, I would say. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I think that, um, like, you know, you, you kind of mentioned your, your great love for, for Aristotle earlier, and you know some of that also is is about you know is about moral philosophy you know the the virtue ethics yeah but i could teach an ethics class without mentioning aristotle and still keep my job <laughs> which can't no <laughs> and obviously aristotle in the larger scheme of things is more important uh Sebaz is trying to eat the microphone um, yeah, nice he'll, he'll do that. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. I, again, I, I, I do want to more directly address the caller's question in just a second, but like, uh, but now, now I am curious, uh, you know, assuming like, I, I mean, again, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think literally, uh, you know, I mean, like if you get in the email, you know, like the subject heading, you know, uh, termination in parentheses, no cont. Uh, but, um, well, like I said, if they had people overseeing <laughs> this, I think they would. So I'm fighting with the cat over here for the, uh, the mic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But, but I, uh, but like just so, so. But insofar as like that would be like extremely strange and raise some eyebrows, like who like like in an ethics class, like who else uh who else would be like that? Mill. Mill. And yeah. that's ki- and that's kind of it. I think that's kind of it. You know, I, I think if you were gonna include a third, it would have to be Aristotle, but he's like I don't. I don't know. Like Mill and Connor tied well, for one. Uh, what about G. A. Cohen? Well, uh, sadly, in, in a much better world, uh, you'd uh, you you'd get in trouble for not including G. A. Cohen. But in uh, the real I, world, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mill and and Kant are are tied for one, and then Aristotle would be one A. Uh, okay. Yeah, that that sounds right. I mean, I guess like I guess in a you know to go to to the sort of more theoretical philosophy side, like which is you know what. Um, the caller was asking about, I, I mean, I think you're right. Like, I think it would be like, I think, a, I think an ethics class, if you didn't cover Kantianism and utilitarianism in an ethics class, like, I mean, that what actually, are you doing? Right. That would be like, wait, wait, wait a second. What's going on here? <laughs> like, like, why didn't you do that? Right. You know, the, but I don't uh, cover Kant in my, uh, in my intro classes. Well, that's what I was going to ask, right. In an intro class, like, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think intro classes are like that. I don't. I don't think intro to philosophy. I mean, I, to me, is, the whole point of an intro class is to draw people into philosophy, and I don't think Kant is the way to do. That. Yeah, sure. Uh, although I, I did, you know, at one point at Rutgers, I did quote on my intro syllabus that line from Kant and the um, uh, from the the groundwork, the metaphysics of morals, where he says that. Uh, he basically says, "Look, I could try to make this simple and easy to read, but then it would just be uh, idle coffeehouse chatter." <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, that's that is a great line. Uh, if I was going to do a unit on ethics in my intro class, then obviously I would include Kant. Yeah, but I mean, I, since I since I don't do ethics because there's a whole separate class for that, I I don't put Kant into. 
Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I mean, I think that like I think that there are things that oftentimes make it into like intro classes that sort of go back like are are like things that Kant says like in the critique of pure reason that like then just became like you know influential things and you know and and like the person think you know saying them like might or might not like you know think about Kant or address Kant and you know but like just I mean maybe this is really to uh uh to Sam's point you know about how influential Kant is that like I think like some of the like if in an intro class there's like a philosophy of religion uh segment which there usually is you know that there's like I think some of the like big objections to some of the arguments for the existence of God are, are things that go back to Kant like certainly like the oh yeah yeah we we mentioned Kant for about five PowerPoint slides <laughs> in, right, uh, right. Do you, do you in the religion was... section so 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 yeah he he does come up in in intro sorry yeah. I, I have to amend my earlier uh, recommendation uh, I'm sure Ben won't like this I I confused G A Corn although I I like G A Corn I meant to say G E more I apologize oh there we go there we go. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, Cohen did certainly write things you could include in the ethics class, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think G more, yeah, probably for like an introductory, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe there is stuff, you know, you could include there, but I, I think it's probably going to be like a little bit off the beaten path of that. I mean, I would say like my understanding of, of intro has always been pretty much what you said, Jed, right. You know, that it's, it's like sort of there to draw people into philosophy. So like, there are things that like all kind of almost always covered in intro class, but it doesn't really feel to me. And maybe this is your, you know, maybe, you know, um, maybe this is, um, this is your, uh, Per, you know, maybe this is your perception, maybe it's not, you know, but it's like, it doesn't seem like there's a, there's like a, oh, you need to, you know, it would be, it would be weird not to cover subject X in an intro class. Like maybe there are things like that, but, um, yeah, yeah, but like it, it doesn't seem so much like that because it's like, it's, it's almost like, I almost think of intro as like, it's like the, you know, preview of coming attractions and like, you know, you can, you know, you can, you know, you can cut together a good preview using very different parts of the movie. Yeah, exactly. No, we, we talk about Kant for about five slides when we talk about Anselm and, uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah. Do, which, do you remember which memes you use on the slides? Uh, <laughs> I'm not, not, not anything that anyone would recognize, I don't think. Okay, yeah. Throughout the, um, I, I, I kept thinking about that during the discussion about memes with the previous caller. You know that the uh, the, the the powerpoints that you put together that are, are very rich in memes. <laughs> Cute animal pictures. All. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess to I guess to like just try to like kind of wrap up the you know like to, like just to more directly answer the caller's uh, question. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's hard to quantify. I mean, I think, yeah, I, mean, I think God is like obviously a hugely important figure. In the- well, you could, you could think about it this way too. Like how many philosophers are there who get their own classes devoted to them? Right. And since Kant is, <clears throat> is one of those, um, you know, yeah. if you were were to list out how often philosophers get classes devoted to just them, he would be really high up on the list. Yeah, that's got to be right. Yeah, um, yeah, I sort of taught one of those at Rutgers, although it wasn't just about Kant. It was uh, was it was it called uh, Hume Kant in the eighteenth century, which was a really fun class. But yeah, but even with that, you know, or or. You know, like I took a what, Descartes, Leibniz, and Spinoza. You know, some uh-huh. even if they're combined, some people are going to get more name recognition in the title. Yeah, yeah, no, fair, right? So, like, surely, I mean, I would be shocked if you actually did quantify that. Like, if you like pulled together all the information from all of the like course catalogs of the world. If there were, if Kant were not like on the top five list at least.
of the people who are most likely to have like classes where where his name's in the title. Yeah, you would have like, Plato and Aristotle, and then yeah, I, I don't know why he wouldn't be in the top. To put five. it like uh, I actually said this to my friend: if there was to be a uh, philosophy seminar with all the with all the philosophers in the history of the Western tradition, uh, Plato and Aristotle would have the highest appearance fees. Kant, justifiably, I think, would have the third highest appearance fee. You know, I think I, in, in I guess that's another way of putting it that I think he, you know, in my frank opinion, he's the third most influential philosopher to ever exist. But uh, but that was just you know, I just wanted your, your guys' input on that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I do like the I do like the image of, of, of Kant coming back to life and decided uh, uh, how much he was going to charge to speak at universities. But uh, that's good. Okay, let's take one more call from uh, Thomas again. Hey, I'm back. Uh, awesome. Uh, I want to sort of go in a slightly different route from what I was asking before um, and ask uh, what contemporary philosophers do you think are sort of uh, pushing philosophy forward the most, you know, going into, uh, you know, new understandings? Um, yeah, who are the most important, I guess, contemporary philosophers? All right, so is contemporary here mean like, um, you know, they, they have to still be alive, or does contemporary here mean like, you know, what, what, what's, I, what's the time frame? Ideally, still alive and and working. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's see. Um, this is not my field. So. Yeah. I'll, oh, I'm sorry. I'll, no, it's all right. It's all right. Although, uh, although when you were writing your your dissertation, uh, you 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 know you were, uh, you know, you always had that. The, the same Scanlon book that was in the good place. Oh, can we and, not talk you, about that? That's so traumatizing. <laughs> it's, it's not riveted reading, but I remember you uh, repeatedly expressing shock that he was still alive. Uh, <laughs> I can never remember who's alive and who's dead. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess, like, um, let me think about this a little bit. So I think that I mean, if uh, he is still alive, throw him on the list. Okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Thomas Scanlon. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's still alive. Uh, I think, I think, if we, I think I would have seen somebody say something about it if he died. But, um, yeah, uh, the uh, if you if you called in, you know, if we if we were doing this two years ago, we could have done Judith Thomas Thompson. Um, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess... Well, she's so close to still being alive, I think she still counts. <laughs> it's, a, it's a grace period after you die, you know? Or you exactly. Still get for it. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if, like... I mean, if pushing for, I guess one question is, like, does pushing forward mean you're right, or can it just mean you're, like, interestingly wrong? And if it can mean that you're interestingly wrong, then can, yeah, uh, yeah. okay, all right, Grand Priest. Uh, what? That's, so what's his? I have no idea. I have no idea who any of the people you guys mentioned so far are. If you can, okay, that's okay. Well, there, there you go. It's a useful call. Then, uh, no, I, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, 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 Scanlon is like a is like a social contract kind of ethicist. Uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson wrote both some very well. She actually did write some like metaphysic stuff about time uh, and identity. If you've ever heard the the abortion argument about being kidnapped and hooked up to a violinist, that's her. Yeah, she. What? No, no. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine if somebody had never uh, had never heard of that. That'd be a really strange <laughs> sentence to hear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, actually, what you probably have heard of is the trolley problem. That's also her. Oh, okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Graham Priest is a, uh, well, I guess British, although he uh, taught in Australia for most of his career, and I think maybe still does like half the year or something. I think he's, he's in, he's at like the city university of New York part of the time now too, but whatever he, uh, uh, 
always Australian in my head, you know, because he's definitely not from there. But he uh, he is uh, a philosopher who wrote this book that I've always found really fascinating, even though I completely disagree with him, uh, called In Contradiction, uh, where he he argues that uh, paradoxes, like the liar paradox, you know, if I say like what I'm saying right now isn't true, um, or like actually my favorite example, of this comes from Hartree field is if, if I say, you know, what the dumbest person in this conversation is saying, you know, isn't, uh, is, is it true, but I'm like arrogant enough. I don't realize that's me, you know, that, like, <laughs> I've, I've, I've just unintentionally said something, you know, paradoxical. Uh, so, so like paradoxes like that, or, you know, he, there's some others, you know, uh, uh, there are like a bunch of other examples, you know, he has, but like, uh, he thinks that, these things have always sort of been regarded as like kind of oddities, like little curiosities, you know, but like uh, he thinks actually these are essentially sound arguments uh, against classical logic that, uh, that they're, that, you know, the like classical logic kind of logic you learn if you take a logic class, uh, if you, uh, you know, if you, if you read through the relevant bits of my, you know, of my first book, whatever, uh, one of the main assumptions is the law of non-contradiction. You know, nothing can be both true and false. Another one is the law of excluded middle. Everything is one or the other. Uh, and he thinks that that these actually show that um, there are true exceptions to the law of non-contradiction. That there are things that are actually true and untrue. Uh, so the the fancy word is is dialethias from the Greek. You know like Aletha truth, so like two truth. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, uh, so he, um, so, so his view is called dialethism, you know, which is the, is the view that there, there can be true contradictions. Uh, and, and I think that this is like literally as wrong as a view could possibly be because like, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, like, and, and I mean that's like not a, like not a joke is like I mean like what's the what's the sort of like right. most decisive thing you could say about why something is wrong? It's inconsistent, right? <laughs> that's so you know and this is the yeah. and, and like this is the a view that's you know explicitly pro inconsistency and <laughs> uh, whatever else you want to say about it, that, that is re- extremely interesting. And I think he is a um, he's. Like he's a sharp enough guy, and like a at, at a you know he's he's good enough what he does that like he, uh, I mean he's also also actually a pretty good writer for a philosopher, but he has, uh, but he, you know, but he actually has like really interesting arguments for this view and really interesting ways of responding to a lot of the obvious objections to it. So like if nothing else, like I think reading Priest, at least this is my experience, like really like makes you think really, really hard about like some of the most foundational possible things that you could assume about anything, you know? And, and I, I find that, you know, so I think that's like, you know, I think that's like, in, you know, if, if anything counts as interestingly wrong, it would have to be that. Um, I will say, uh, it, you know, if you want to know how I would respond to a lot of this stuff, uh, this is part of what my dissertation was about, which unfortunately is, you know, uh, online. So you can see, you know, the, uh, you know, you can see what I was like, you know, like I, I think all of, uh, pour a drink and settle. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I only say unfortunately, cause I think I'm a better writer and I would have organized the argument more clearly if I'd written it now, not 12 years ago, but, uh, you know, or more, but, uh, but uh, there is a better version of of the of the same arguments that is in a book that's actually coming out like next month, I think. Um, so uh, this is this is actually the first book I ever wrote. But plug in, plug in. <laughs> uh, the process of revising it took forever, right? You know, like I I, I finished the I finished the first draft in like the summer of of uh, twenty eighteen. Uh, so, but it's finally coming out. It's called uh, Logic Without Gaps or Gluts, How to Solve Paradox Without Sacrificing 
classical logic. Uh, I fully expect one tenth of one percent of the people who read my political books to be interested <laughs> <laughs> to be interested in reading this, you know. But uh, and for that to make up like you know two thirds of the audience, you know, since like not a lot of people read books about philosophy of logic. Uh, and frankly, I don't even, you know, I mean, I'm excited for it to be out there. So like the 20 people who do read those books like this, will, you know, we'll read it. Uh, I'm proud of the book, but I also like, you know, I, I'm also like, I don't even like with, with stuff like this, it was the same thing when that like book, the, the liberalism and socialism thing that Matt McManus edited, it came out. It's like academic publishing being what it is. The stuff is like ridiculously expensive to buy. I don't know how much they're going to charge for this, but it's going to be a lot. So I always tell people for this, like, don't like, I'm, I'm not going to like tell anybody to go buy the book. Just like, you know, get your library to buy it. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but you know, if you're interested in finding out what I say in there, uh, get your library to buy a copy of, uh, of the book, uh, when it, uh, you know, when, when it, uh, you know, when it, when it comes out, but, but yeah, I, I think that would be, I think I think Grand Priest would be my nominee for somebody who's like still alive and still working, and is um, and is like you know pushing things in like really interesting directions. Yeah, that does sound interesting. Uh, I mean, wrong as you said, but interesting. Uh, um, I'm curious if there are any like I don't know contemporary like friends. In philosophy, like I mean, maybe it's just because not enough time has passed that we can't sort of periodize, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so, 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 like we can't like say like what uh, Ryan Lake's influence is. Who's Ryan Lake? I don't uh, know. <laughs> you don't know Ryan Lake? That's that's kind of uh, a joke. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's Ryan Lake? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, Ryan is a friend of ours. He's he's been on uh, the. He's, he's been on the and my esteemed colleague, Ryan is my esteemed no, colleague. There's absolutely no reason you should, you know, you should have, you know, know who he is. But uh, you know, but I, I actually do think he's he's written some interesting stuff, uh, you know, about uh, free will and determinism, which is what is is like uh, his his area is. But yeah, that that was why. Uh, I mean, the joke worked even better than I thought it would because you're like, who's that? You know. But, <laughs> 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 I was uh I remember I posted on Facebook years ago when Jed was working on a dissertation and uh uh you know it was about moral philosophy but she said something or other in it about free will and um and I don't even remember what her claim was but I was like reading over the chapter and I was like oh I think like uh some compatibilist would deny that and she was like okay like who I mean I'll I'll, I'll you know say something about it here I was like oh Ryan she was like, oh, "Okay, maybe not Ryan. Like, you know, maybe, you know. it's like okay, whatever." I, I remember Nick Stag when I posted that. I was like, "Oh, you know, okay, mention Ryan and Leibniz, and you know, and, you know, and the two together should be okay." But, Ryan's dissertation is the only dissertation I've ever read. Uh, yeah, actually, which 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 did win the uh, some sort of humanities dissertation. So award. I picked a good one to uh, read. It is a very it is a very well written dissertation, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that you know right. So the point, like um, you know, it's also kind of like you know, Jed made the joke earlier about how like you you just sort of like pick up the collected works of Aristotle and let it fall to a you know like let it fall open and you know and on that page you get like what the answer whatever you're, you're you're trying to figure out and so it's like I guess the you know, and, and like the thing that's kind of true there is that if you're reading like Aristotle, he writes about everything, right? Like mm-hmm. the, you know, I mean, wrong about many things. You know, like there's like we've we've actually figured some what, stuff out. What? Did- <laughs> we, you know, <laughs> like we we have actually figured some stuff out in the last few thousand years. You know, that's uh, you know, like I I think uh, I think he I think his understanding of how biology worked, you know, for example, was was probably you know pretty wrong and. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I also do. I also do tend to think slavery was wrong. So you know, so there, there's probably some disagreement with Aristotle there. But the, uh, <laughs> but, um, but like you know, he's, well, he says that some people are natural slaves. <laughs> so there's a set of people that are natural <laughs> slaves, and that set contains zero people. Oh, okay. I see. He just, he just didn't bother to spell out that last part. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so he's not technically wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like I like it. I like it. But yeah, so Aristotle's like writing about everything. Um 
you know, even Kant is kind of writing about everything, right? Like the go to go back to the but in a color, much like, like less Kant. readable way. <laughs> so some of it, <laughs> some of it is not that you know, like like he has his moments, but much of it is not very readable. Uh, <laughs> not that I think you know Aristotle's exactly beach read either, but um, but I think. Yeah, so like even like Kant in the 18th century is kind of writing about everything, you know, like whereas now philosophy, at least the kind of philosophy that, you know, we're most familiar with uh, that, you know, like whatever analytic philosophy, however useful that like categorization scheme might be, uh, is, is like so much more specialized. Right. You know, that like, you know, that you might get like people who write about like kind of a few things. Right. You know, but uh, but but I think it I think it does make it a little bit tricky, you know, to sort of do the like, oh, like what's the sort of uh, the person who's, you know, pushing things in an interesting way or whatever, because you think like, OK, or, you know, you it's so it's so like sub sub area specific. Right. You know, like like that the. Um, you know, I use the example of the still within the grace period of contemporary Judith Jarvis Thompson, uh, who is, uh, like she, you know, I mean, she, she did like, I think the pretty broad range of interest because like she wrote like a little bit of metaphysics stuff and a lot of ethics stuff, but like it's, uh, but I think it's probably, you know, more common that, you know, that like, you know, three quarters of what people write or something is in, is in one area, which, which does, yeah, which, which does like probably make it like a little bit, you know, a little bit trickier. Cause it's like, well, you know, you might, you know, depending on how broad your interests are, you know, like it might be hard to, you know, like think of people who are working outside of the stuff that you happen to be interested in. And, you know, and, and it's like, like whatever your answers are, they're probably not going to be as significant in the long term as like Aristotle or Kant, not just because like, <laughs> you know, right. not just because like those are like, you know, whatever, you know, that's <laughs> like not, not, not just because that's like saying like, Oh, you know, who's the, uh, you know, who's the, uh, you know, whatever, who's the, who's the playwright working today? Who's as good as Shakespeare. Right. You know, like not just because of that. Right. You know, but like also because it's like, I, I think the fact that they were writing about so many different things alone probably helps to make them more influential. But anyway, that's, that's probably my best answer. Yeah. Right, get, do you think, oh, sorry. Oh no, no, no. Go, go, please. Do, do you think that, that, um, that sort of like hyper specialization, um, which I've heard is like, you know, sort of incentivized by like the way academia is structured at the moment. Do you find that to be like beneficial to the development of philosophy or harmful that we don't have these sort of generalists, I guess might be the term you use, you know? Uh, a little of each, maybe. Like, I, I think it probably. Why not both? Uh, there you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised that wasn't your favorite meme. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was my second. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think maybe this is a why not both, right? <laughs> like, like I think there are definitely benefits and harms. Like, I think that, like, I think the benefits probably that like it it helps people like really drill down on like particular things because like you've read like you know. I don't know if you're like really actively doing research on something, you know, like really specific, maybe you've like read every paper that's been written about that thing and like forever. And like, so you really know what all of the arguments and counter arguments and objections are and stuff. There is definitely going to be some advantage to that, but I'm not crazy about it in a different way. Like I think that some of that hyper-specialization is really conducive to people. Well, okay. Most obviously people only writing for each other. And, uh, and also like also sometimes writing about less interesting topics, right? Because I, 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 so another, um, so another friend of ours from grad school, Brian Monday, I I had a conversation with him about this a while back where it's like, sometimes it feels like with that hyper specialization that like 
philosophy journals, like the way that like people write journal articles and everything. It's like it superficially, it's like science journals that like you publish your research or whatever. And it's going to be some super tiny little result. And in science though, there's kind of a justification for that because all of those like super tiny little results can actually like sort of add up to something bigger, you know, <laughs> like yeah. they, you know, that, and, and, uh, and like really move the needle in a, in a bigger sense would put together. Whereas it's not nearly as clear to me that like super tiny arguments in philosophy can, can like add up in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, and also, I don't know. I think there's also something very unhelpful about the way that uh, peer review works. I think it encourages people to like write these papers because they want to get past like every stupid little thing that a reviewer might bring up, you know. So they have <laughs> like, you know, like like you waste half of the paper talking about all of these like insanely nitpicky objections that like you know it's like mm-hmm. is, is this really you know like what how important is this. And and I don't know. Like I said, I have mixed feelings about it because, like, I do like. I mean, I think there is something good about that level of rigor, but like, also, I guess, I guess the question, the bigger question is like, what is philosophy for, right? You know, what? Why are you doing this in the first place? And it seems to me that, um, that there might be a you know, there might be a better way of doing this in terms of people writing on a sort of broad range of topics uh, where they're saying something that's like interesting and kind of moves the conversation forward, but that doesn't necessarily like involve having to like address like every stupid little point made about this and like the last 50 papers that were written on the topic, you know, <laughs> and that, and that might be better. So I guess that's my, I guess that's my thought. But, okay. Um, time flies. Uh, I uh, do need to do my SSCC class. So, uh, I am going to have to end this there, but these were really interesting calls. Uh, thank you everybody. And, uh, yeah, thank And thank you, Dr. Burgess. You are so welcome, Dr. Burgess. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll be back on Tuesday uh, with uh, with with my um, uh, with another of my favorite Texans. Uh, this uh, this was my favorite, but uh, we'll be back with another one of them, uh, David Griscom, on Tuesday at five thirty. See everybody then, Jen. Anything you want to say to to take us out? Team Snoopy forever. <laughs> Left us both. <laughs>